spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Your patience has definitely paid off. It's episode 359 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and that phrase actually means a lot this week because we're talking about stuff that you've been waiting for forever like Zack Snyder's Justice League which is finally here the Falcon and the Winter Soldier finally premiered on Disney Plus we'll have reviews of both of those shows this week and speaking of Patience in Patience Colorado that is the setting of Resident Alien from Sci-Fi which was just renewed for a second season so let's talk to Sarah Tomko and executive producer Chris Sheridan about the show as we head into episode nine, as we head towards the season one finale. Lots to chat about. But that's not the only interview on the show this week. We're going to revisit SAS Red Notice once again. Going to actually talk to writer Rodney Barnes, too, about Philadelphia. So much. There might not be as much nerd news this week because this is about bringing you the best and the most up-to-date stuff in the nerd world. And sometimes that's interviews and sometimes that's not. This week just happens to be interview-heavy once again, so let's get things started. I'm not going to wait any longer. You've waited long enough. My spoiler-free review of Zack Snyder's Justice League up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yo, yo, this is Cameron Johnson from the cast of Batwoman. You are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You asked for it repeatedly, and now we have gotten it. The moment I don't know that any of us ever thought was actually going to happen. Zack Snyder's Justice League, the Snyder Cut, whatever you want to call it, is finally here on HBO Max, and yep, here it is, my spoiler-free review of Zack Snyder's Justice League. And I know it's been out for a couple days, but it's a four-hour movie. Odds are you're watching this in sections, in parts. If you're lucky enough to see it and sit down for four hours and see it, good for you, but I'm not going to spoil it for anybody that hasn't had a chance or might be on the fence and wondering if they should see it. Now, again, this is my opinion. On what I saw, I got to see it a few days early. I've had a chance to digest everything that I've seen. And my first impression was when it was all said and done is I was shocked at how different this movie actually is from Joss Whedon's version. I mean, I thought that there'd be some differences, right? But I didn't realize just how vastly different this movie would be. And there are certain things about it that make all of the difference, too, in my opinion. Like, I can understand Ray Fisher's beef with Joss Whedon's version because there is much more, and as we were promised, much more cyborg in this version of the movie. And it makes a huge difference in how the story is told and the direction that the story goes in. There's also more of Ezra Miller's Flash. I still don't like the suit, still can't stand it, It's hard for me to get past that. I do not like the Flash suit in this Justice League movie and in the DC movie universe in general. Don't like it. Hopefully they change it for the solo movie. But we get more of the Flash. And again, it makes a world of difference in how this story plays out, especially at the end for those two characters. So I thought just that alone made a huge difference and made me like it more. And I say that as somebody who is not typically much of a cyborg fan in in almost anything. I don't dislike the character, but that's not what I'm coming to the party for, especially in a Justice League movie. But the way his story is told 
makes a huge difference and it's impactful and it makes you, if you didn't really before, makes you care about the cyborg character and understand his importance in the whole story, this story in particular. So while it doesn't showcase everything that cyborg can do, it does a little bit. It's a, you have to understand that it's a starting point for a lot of these characters in this particular story. What I also thought was really interesting is this kind of gives us a more hopeful Batman in general, not just in this particular movie, but in general. And that's not something that we're used to. And I feel like if this is the Batman that we got from Ben Affleck, he there might not have been as much criticism, right? He's still dark. He's still brooding. And we get more Jeremy Irons, too, as Alfred, which I love, by the way. Jeremy Irons deserved better, for sure, when it comes to this. So, yeah, I, I thought that they did a great job at showcasing him as well. So there are some characters that didn't get their due in the original Justice League movie. Or maybe this is the original Justice League movie. Don't come at me for my choice of words here. Joss Whedon's version. There's definitely characters that got more time in Zack Snyder's version, and justifiably so. But I want to take a second to talk about time. Because this is a four-hour movie, and that's a big ask, okay? I don't care how much you've been waiting for this, how much you love Zack Snyder. That's a big ask. And I will say that I feel like this was never really intended to be a four-hour movie if this were the movie that we would have gotten all along. And I say that this had to have been something that was planned for two parts. And we knew that it was kind of planned for two parts, right? I mean, Zack Snyder comes out and says that, you know, the second part would take place. A sequel would be all in the nightmare world, right? Batman's nightmare. Okay, that's fine. But it just feels like this would not have been one four-hour movie if if it had been the one that was released in general. There's no way. But there's also no good spot, really, for me to cut this into two parts either. I suppose you could have cut it at, and this is just me guesstimating here, just for my purposes. At like the three-hour mark, there is a good spot where you could say, okay, let's stop it here, and then the next movie will be our sequel or part two of this. You could have done that. But again, that's at the three-hour mark, even on the editing floor, you make that, what, two and a half hours, which I guess is is about right for for a big movie like this. If you want to go, you know, look at the Avengers movies for Marvel, that's that's about right. You know, getting it about two and a half hours, and then you get two of those, and maybe you'd end up with a longer movie. And you'd add more detail in the second one that you didn't get in this particular cut. But, I mean, he says there's ten cuts of this movie, and, and I think we only need the one, quite frankly. But anyway, I, it's it's... It's hard to fathom that this would be a four-hour movie. And you have to understand, and that's one of the things you might hate about this. If you end up hating this, you might hate that it's a four-hour movie. You might think that it's boring at times. I didn't because, to me, this was a deep dive. This was a detail-oriented deep dive into some of these characters. And the that's either a blessing or a curse because there's part of this where it's like, okay... So you're giving me origins for some of these characters, right? In a way, not true origins, but their introduction into this movie universe because they haven't had solo movies. Because remember, they skipped to the Justice League movie 
instead of doing solo movies first. They went the opposite way. And this either helps them or hurts them, depending on your perspective, because you have to tell these origin-like stories in this Justice League movie to establish these characters, right? And establish their, their whole vibe. And, and they do that in this movie. You get more detail on Cyborg, and it makes you care more. You get more detail on Flash, makes you care more. Even a little bit more on Aquaman. I mean, we can look back now after the Aquaman movie, right? But but if you had this in reverse, again, you're giving me a little bit more Aquaman now than you would have before the Aquaman movie came out. So you have to do these things in order to tell the story. And normally that's not a typical thing, you know? You've already seen Wonder Woman. You've already seen Batman. You've already seen Superman in this world. But the others, you have to bring them in a different way. And, and your villains as well. And there's a lot of villain backstory on Steppenwolf, who, by the way, just just to take this as an aside for a second, much more menacing in Zack Snyder's Justice League. I mean, much more brutal, much more menacing, maybe a little bit, you know, bowing to dark side in a certain way. I don't know how exactly what word I'd use to describe it. Groveling. Maybe, but something happens with Steppenwolf. There's a reason for that, and they get into that in this cut of the movie. But but my point is, is that this is a detail-oriented movie, and it was, and I feel like it is that way because it was allowed to be that way. This is a special circumstance where Zack Snyder goes, "Okay, if you're going to let me just do what I want and do the movie I want to do, then I'm just going to throw all the details in, and I'm not going to cut." Almost anything. Matter of fact, I'm going to shoot some new stuff. How do you like that? So that's what you're getting here. If this were, again, going to be the theatrical release that we got originally, I think that some of this stuff ends up on the cutting room floor or some other stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. Or again, you break this up into two parts. But there is a lot of buildup before we actually meet the team. That, that much I can tell you. So that's either going to be great for you or it's going to be one of the things that you're going to complain about forever when it comes to this movie. So I'll just I'll just throw that out there right now. I I will say that again for the new characters that we didn't see before like Darkseid and and some of his group, of course you, you saw the trailer with Granny Goodness in there and Desad and things like that. You've you've seen this stuff already. This this is not breaking news for you. So you don't get a ton of new character stuff. At least I don't feel like it was a ton. Certainly more dark side than I expected. There's one flashback scene in this movie that involves dark side and a bunch of others that's incredible. I mean, this is one of the big moments of this movie. And once you get there, you'll understand what I'm talking about. In freaking incredible. That was one of my favorite scenes of this entire movie. So and and as far as Deathstroke goes, yeah, you get a little bit of Deathstroke. You get a little bit of that surprise character that Zack Snyder was talking about that, that was apparently leaked by somebody. And I'm not going to be the one that brings it up if you haven't seen it already. So, And that character, by the way, that surprise character, change, completely changes one of the scenes from Joss Whedon's version. And it's an important scene, too. It wasn't important in Joss Whedon's version. It's, it's very important. In Zack Snyder's version, because it's it's a small thing, but it changes something in a big way, and it's 
going to play a role later on in the movie that will make something make much more sense. That is another thing. There were parts of the, and, and there's still some plot holes in this. This is, this is not a perfect movie by any stretch. Don't get me wrong. There's definitely some plot holes, but there are some there are other things that make much more sense in this movie than they ever did in the Justice League movie from Joss Joss Whedon. And I say that as somebody who didn't hate that Joss Whedon Justice League movie either. So, I, I mean, quite frankly, if I'm being honest, I didn't hate that one. But now that I see this one, I see how it could have been done so much better. I mean, so much better. And I, and I think that a lot of fans are going to look at Zack Snyder a little bit differently, too, based on this movie, crazy as that sounds. There's a lot of people that, you know, hated Man of Steel, hated Batman versus Superman. And there's still some of those elements in this movie. Sure, there are going to be things about those movies that will carry over into this Justice League cut that you're not going to like. That's who Zack Snyder is. You either accept it or you don't. Okay, and if you're not going to like him for those things, there are plenty of things you're not going to like him for in this. So prepare yourself for that. But at the same time, you can tell there's just certain characters that he gets. I think he gets Superman better than people think. I also think he gets Wonder Woman a little bit better than people think. Not as well as Patty Jenkins does, not by any stretch, but he gets Wonder Woman just in a different way. He understands that character. He just can't tell the story as well as somebody like Patty Jenkins can. And by the way, that's okay too. So I do think this will change fans' perspective on Zack Snyder as a whole. Now, will he ever make another DC movie again? I don't know. That's a different discussion for a different time. All I know is the ending to this movie is 10 times better than the last one. For a lot of reasons. And there's also an epilogue in this as well. And it's almost like a, a he said there was going to be a cliffhanger. And boy, was he right. This is a here's what you would have gotten were I were I allowed to continue with this story. And some of the characters that were announced that that were being included into this movie. And you're like, oh, how the hell are they going to fit in? Well, you'll find out. Let me just put it that way. It will make sense. I, I, I was worried before. It will make sense why they're doing what they're doing and why they added who they added. That much I'll tell you and nothing else again because I don't want to spoil anything. But to sum up, basically, this is a movie that I do believe was worth the wait. Is it worth the four hours? My recommendation is is that you, you do it a half at a time. That's just my recommendation. You're going to want it once you get to part five. Once you start part five, because it's in six parts. Once you start part five, there's no turning back. You have to finish at that point. So if you are watching this and you get to part five, you better sit down and be ready because you're going to want to finish. That is the point of no return for me is where once you get there, that's where you're not going to be able to stop. So I'm just going to warn you about that right now. But this is a worthwhile thing that was done. This is not something where... Obviously, it's hard to live up to four years of hype, right? It really, really is. And, and, you know, whether or not this lives up to the four years of hype for you is a matter of personal opinion, I think. Like, I can say, I was never asking for this movie. So I come into this as this is a bonus for me. 
This is something I never really expected to get. Now that I've gotten it, I go, wow, that was much more enjoyable than I thought. But if you've been chomping at the bit for this for like four years and you get it, and maybe it doesn't live up to your expectations because you're like, okay, I expected more. And maybe that's a fair criticism. All I'm saying is, is that I can't tell you if this is going to be worth it for you. Okay. This is a matter of personal opinion. For me, I was pleasantly surprised with what I got from Zack Snyder's Justice League. I thought the visuals were good. I thought the action was much better this time around. I thought there was a lot more hope. I thought that there was a lot more a lot more big hero moments in this. I thought that the characters that we did see that we didn't see in Joss Whedon's version were used properly and not overdone either, by the way. Weren't made a huge part of the main story. This story was about the heroes and how they come together to stop something that it looks like cannot be stopped. And isn't, at the end of the day, that all we really want from a superhero movie, especially one that teams up the world's greatest heroes. So Zack Snyder's Justice League, I'm glad that we got this. Now where do we go from here? That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Zack Snyder's Justice League. Up next, another big release that happened today. Yeah, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We'll talk about episode one next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Peter David, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. After some delays and bumps in the road, Marvel's second Disney Plus series from Marvel Studios is a go. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier premiered today, as a matter of fact, on Disney Plus. I want to give you my spoiler-free review of the first episode. I got I got a chance to see it a couple of days early. Again, I want to be spoiler-free because maybe you haven't had a chance to see it yet, and I'm not going to be that guy. What I will tell you is that this is very much a first episode of almost any series, right? Because it, it really sets the tone for what we're going to see. And I'm not going to confirm or deny any of the big moments that happen in this episode, and there are a couple. But what we do get to see is we get to see Sam and Bucky, and they're on two very different paths right now. We get to see each of where they are both at at this present time. And I say present time, meaning this is post-Endgame. So we know that already now. We are dealing with a post-Endgame world. That is the timeline that this is set in. And surprisingly, we actually get some personal stuff. With Sam Wilson, we get to to see the Falcon a bit grounded, as it were, and get to see a little bit of his his personal life that we have not gotten to see up to this point. And quite frankly, that was was kind of refreshing to see because it takes him outside. He's, He's always had this role where, yeah, he's a hero, but he's never been the guy. And now that they're kind of making him at least partially the guy in this series, we're going to get to know him a little bit better apparently in this series, which I think is really neat. And I can't help but wonder if this is one of those things that's going to be used to pull the rug out from under him at some point. I just feel like that it's going to, but the only time will tell. I mean, you still get to do see him do his thing. There's a really, there's some really good action right away in the series. I think that hooks you right away in the first episode. They kind of tell you exactly, you know, who they're looking at and what they're looking for as far as Sam Wilson's story is concerned, so I think that that's a that was a really really good thing to do to start things off. But you get to see he's he's not quite right. Sam isn't, and and there's a reason for that. And I think that that kind of that throws you off 
a little bit in the beginning of this because we, you know, you're used to seeing, you know, the 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 quick quick wit of Sam Wilson. You get to see the Falcon flying around and and doing his thing, and you know, almost I don't want to say not a care in the world, but you know, beaming of positivity, and we don't necessarily get that in this first episode. And I think that that's an interesting perspective to take. As far as Bucky's concerned, you can only imagine where his head is at post end game. Right. And you get to see what, you know, what he's struggling with and what he's doing. And again, we get something very personal from Bucky and something that is just tormenting him. And I kind of connected the dots on that one pretty quickly but they do reveal it and make it obvious in this episode. So you get to see that both both Sam and Bucky are dealing with some very personal issues for very different reasons and in very different ways, too, by the way. So it's really interesting that we get that emotional depth in this first episode because I think one of the things that they need to do, because let's face it, if you're, ta- if you're talking about the main Avengers, you don't need to create emotional depth there because they're the friggin' Avengers, right? And you're going to care regardless. But adding more depth to characters like Falcon and the Winter Soldier, even if you already liked them, it's going to make you like them more. But if you were on the fence and you weren't sure why they should be interesting, this will give you more of a reason for them to be interesting. And I think that that's one of the things that Marvel does so well and they, t- they deserve a lot of credit for doing it in this series. Now, we do get to see things evolve a little bit as to see how maybe things could converge in this show between the two stories and it makes perfect sense. Think about the one thing that Sam Wilson and Bucky Barnes would agree on. And that is the thing that I think is going to bring them together. It's a spoiler, so I can't tell you what it is, but it is a major moment not just in this movie, but not just in the series, but in the Marvel Universe as a whole, I think. And and this show is supposedly going to set up multiple Marvel projects from here on out. That wouldn't surprise me, based just on this first episode alone. So I think that they're they're definitely building on something, but it's a little bit of a slow build in this episode as well. But again, do you want to peel the onion or not, right? Do you just want them to start kicking and punching things and and going after, you know, the main villain? Or do you want to add some depth here because it's a series and we have a chance to do something like that, especially when we're not bogging it down with a whole bunch of different characters? That's not to say you're not going to see some familiar faces in this first episode because you will. I'm just not telling you who. What I'm saying is is that if you're going to give me a spotlight, on the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Give me more then. And that's exactly what they do. We get to meet some new characters as well that are also very interesting. One of them that, that works with Sam. And I think this is a character that, you know, I, I thought was really I thought it was really good right away. And I want to see more of him as well. And again, I can't tell you who that is. But I, again, it's 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 put together very well. And I think that what we're going to see is that depth that was added is going to come back to bite him at some point. And I think that that is one of the reasons that it was dumb. But I think that this show is is off to a good start. Is it one of those things where you're going to see it? It's th- This is one of the reasons why having WandaVision go first was either going to be a blessing or a curse. Because this very much feels like a quote-unquote regular Marvel Studios project, right? Whereas the first episode of WandaVision was so different 
and so weird and so good in its own way, it couldn't help but grab your attention for a diff- for that reason, right? Because it was so different. This one will grab your attention because you're going to see that they're going to give you more than just your standard hero villain type story. You're actually going to get to see the person behind the hero, which is something that Marvel does so well in their documentaries that are on Disney Plus, whether it be the the behind the mask or the when you we get to see the behind the scenes of the making of like WandaVision, things like that. This is one of those things that Marvel does well in those. Now let's bring that to our series because guess what? We've got episodes now where we can actually tell these stories and show us, the audience, why these characters might be a little bit more interesting and might be a little bit better than you think. So I think this is a great start for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and I think it's only going to get 10 times more interesting from here on, on out. Again, peel the onion and I think you'll really love what's inside. It's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Episode 1 from Disney Plus and Marvel Studios. Up next, we are heading towards a critical point in sci-fi's Resident Alien, so I had to bring back Sarah Tomko to talk about it and showrunner Chris Sheridan as we head into Episode 9. We'll talk Resident Alien next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Summer Bischel from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We are so close to the season one finale of Resident Alien on sci-fi. And I got a chance, actually, before the show was renewed for a second season, I got a chance to talk to executive producer, showrunner Chris Sheridan, and Sarah Tomko, once again, who plays Asta on the show, about what was going to be coming up in episode nine after the amazing episode, episode eight, this past week. So here it is, my conversation with Chris Sheridan and Sarah Tomko. Alrighty, here we go. So looking forward to what's the back back half of season one of Resident Alien. And Sarah, actually, when I talked to you before the premiere, I asked you how Asta would handle possibly <laughs> finding out about Harry's secret. So the reaction when you saw how that was going to play out, what was it like? Oh, man. I was sort of not surprised. <laughs> I mean, I was obviously surprised as Sarah to read and oh we finally get to have that moment yes she finds out but I think it's so lovely how Chris wrote it and that you know she's of course taken aback but then she goes right into nurse mode and has got to save his life and that humanizes him again and so there's this weird moment where she's helping him uh, you know and it's blue blood and there's there's all these things happening and she sees half human half alien going on and you kind of start to see her really calculating like you know this makes a lot of sense you're so bizarre (laughs) (laughs) but like i get it now but then it's this really almost like whoa i feel a bit betrayed Uh, Mm -hmm. and also really really surreal like weirded out is this real almost like a dream we fell into this crevasse (laughs) we we all (laughs) trying to say that word on set and I feel like now that you finally see that there's this release for the audience like thank god somebody knows but then there's this like sadness that comes with like he lied to her and that was kind of part of the whole way that that she leaned on him and trusted him so I don't know I think it's really amazing how it was written and it was so fun to be with Alan that day and that happened to be the last day we shot before pandemic shut us down so the world was on fire oh wow 
And I found out that Harry was an alien. <laughs> Big day for you. Big day for you. <laughs> it was Friday the 13th, too, so it was just... Oh, my gosh. Wow. Chris, to kind of play off of that, I mean, it would have been really easy to kind of drag that out, right, to make that maybe a, a season one finale thing or a season or even into season two, should we, fingers crossed, get there. So what did you, what made you decide, what was the decision into going ahead and making that reveal in this first season? Well, there's a couple things. I mean, there was, you know, originally I, I had come into the writer's room and I think originally it was happening around episode four. And then it was the, the, the whole group of writers where just the way the season was going, it made more sense to sort of push it back a little bit. You know, it's one of those things. I remember uh, hearing an interview, I think, with Howard Gordon, who, among other things, did Homeland for many years. And one of the things that I think he said is that there's certain elements in these, in these shows that the audience is ahead of. Like, there's certain things you know is going to happen. You know, the audience knows at some point, Asa is going to find out that Harry's an alien. It's just sort of built into it. At some point, it's going to happen. So the only way to sort of surprise them is for it to happen sooner than they think it is. And so even though that is a moment, that certainly could be the end of the first season. Being able to push that moment up into the middle of the season, or in this case, you know, episode eight. And again, it was going to be end of seven, actually, we push it to eight. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the ways to just keep the audience just always guessing and not sure what's going to happen. And yeah, it's a big moment, but it, it you know, it worked out well. And I think the timing of it worked out really well for us. And, and the other reason we wanted to do it in the first season is, you know, Harry has a lot of voiceover in the show because he has no one to talk to. So it's a nice turn in the season and in the series where now at least, you know, it helped that you know, midway through the season, suddenly he could, in his own way, talk to Max about some stuff. But now being able to talk to Asta as well will help us, you know, get a window into what he's thinking without it always being voiceover. So just from a writing standpoint, that was helpful as well. No doubt about it. And Sarah, one of my favorite things about this season, other than that, actually, has been just Asta and Darcy. I love that dynamic. I love that relationship between the two of them so much. But do we feel like episodes eight and nine, is that friendship going to get tested a little bit, maybe? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, so look, I tell Darcy everything, except I didn't tell her about, you know, maybe like the biggest thing that ever happened to me, which was giving away my child when I was 16. So this is kind of a pattern of behavior here. Whatever my deepest, darkest secrets are, Asta, you know, has this tendency to really keep it close to the chest, even away from her best friend. And that's a, that's a testament to her insecurities and her character and how she really does struggle to trust anyone. And, you know, this is such an interesting storyline. Imagine what, like, what would Darcy say? And would Darcy believe her? And would she seem crazy? And, it, you know, there's just all this, she's just started to get back on her feet. She's just started to like, really like lean into her community again and find herself. And now there's this alien, like what, you know, I just feel like, I do think it's going to test Darcy and Asta's relationship. I do think it's going to show the truth about friendships, no matter how close you are. Sometimes you still have to go into your own cocoon until you can figure things out. And it's hurtful, I think, to Darcy that she wouldn't be open and honest with her like she always is. But, but Darcy doesn't understand why. And it's just because this is a really incredibly big secret to hold 
I don't know. I mean, I think about that with myself, like, oh my God, would I tell my best girlfriends? And then of course my answer was yes. And they would also help me bury the body. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? like, like my girlfriends would understand, but Asta doesn't have that. Like she's still learning to trust men and women. So, you know, she's like, in some ways, emotionally, her, her development got stunted when she was 16 and she gave that baby away. And even though Darcy's always been there for her, there's this way that she feels so much shame about that secret that, you know, this is just one more secret to pile on to an already like big purse of, of, of secrets that she holds, you know? Chris, let's talk about Harry for a second, because we've been seeing his feelings, sort of his emotions manifest more and more as the season goes on. So I'm thinking about this as I'm watching specifically episode eight and into nine. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, who do you think's the bigger key to saving the world? Is it Asta or is it actually Harry, the manifestation, the skin suit of Harry itself? What's the key here? I think it's, I think it's both. I mean, I think what we're, what we're following to that first season is, you know, this alien comes down with this mission to do this diabolic, diabolical thing and kill everybody which is fine when he gets here because he's an alien and he looks at us like ants and he doesn't have emotions. So we're, we're, you know, the ants at the picnic that you just kick away or step on or whatever. But, you know, then he has these emotions building inside of him. And, you know, I think what we're really following for the season is, will he get enough emotion to care enough about human beings before he finds his device, you know, to commit this sort of act before he gets the device and commits this act. So I think it's a combination, whatever's going to play out as a combination of where he's at in the manifestation of the feelings he's feeling and these, you know, this specific friendship, you know, and this, this connection he, he has with this woman, Asta, who I think is surprising him. I don't think he, he's never felt anything like this because he's never felt anything. So as he's sort of wading through these human emotions, I think all these things are at play. And I, I think whatever decision he makes has is, is got to be a combination of, you know, how he feels inside to the outer world. And the closest person to him in the outer world is, is Asta. And, and it's all going to weigh on him. And it's, you know, he's, he's got quite a journey ahead of him. Before I let you both go, episode nine, I want to, I want to scream it from the rooftops because there's a hilarious place that Asta and Harry both go in this episode. And you guys have a really, I think, hilarious cameo in this episode too, by the way. So I want you to just both talk about for a second, how fun was episode nine to put together? Oh, it was fun. Oh, I'll jump in real quick and I'll let you go, Sarah. But but it, I will say, because I have said this before, Asta and, and Harry go to a UFO convention in episode nine, which is ridiculous that you go to a UFO convention with, with an actual alien. So <laughs> I just want to say this, Sarah, because you can talk about the UFO convention. Actual convention, okay. Or whatever um, you want to yeah. talk about. Well, I first just want to also say that um, I like to believe that Asta is the key to saving the world. So, <laughs> of course, why not? I just want to know that no pressure, Asta. <laughs> Everything lies with you either being kind or not kind to an alien. <laughs> Episode nine was one of my most favorite episodes to shoot. I got a chance to really have some fun. I am so emotional and vulnerable and raw on the show. So it was so like, oh, it was like um, going to, um, I don't know, like a fair or something. I'm eating popcorn over here and I'm watching this and I'm like, ooh, look at that. You know, I mean, it was just so much fun to actually witness Harry 
he's the one in hot water now. He's the one that's trying to figure things out. And Asta's just like, this is fun, (laughs) you know? And then to be able to work with Terry, I know that like that was a huge a huge, exciting thing for me because I was a lost fan. So I was so excited to be able to be on set with him. And without giving any more spoilers away, I ultimately just think it was really exciting to see Harry have to, now that I know he's an alien, for me to like see what aliens look like in, you know, in the human world, and then to like look at him and compare you know, the (laughs) costumes and be like, oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Not bad. We were pretty close actually. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun. I love it. I love it. Make sure you guys are watching every Wednesday night, 10 o'clock on sci-fi resident alien. Wait till you see what's coming up in these next couple of episodes. It's Sarah Tomko, Chris Sheridan. Thank you so much for joining me guys. Yeah. Thank you. This ninth episode of resident alien is a blast. I can't wait for you guys to see it, or maybe you've already seen it. Either way, make sure you're watching Resident Alien on Sci-Fi. That's going to do it for my conversation with Sarah Tomko and Chris Sheridan. Up next, how about we have another conversation about SAS Red Notice with writer Andy McNabb. He's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is writer Mark Miller, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You've already heard me talk quite a bit about SAS Red Notice. Maybe that's because it's amazing. It's a star-studded, just action throw. I mean, there's so many ways to describe it, but I think it's best to ask the guy that's written the novels himself. He's a multi-million copy selling author, former SAS agent himself. It's Andy McNabb. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So Andy, first of all, I just want to say thank you for your service. uh, And I appreciate everything that you've done. Now, given that background, when you're going into a film project like SAS Red Notice, how important is it to you that everything look as authentic as possible? You know, it's really, really important. It, it, and, and depending on the type of film, you know, that I might have got involved with, if you're looking at something like the, the Expendables, that's fantastic because it's, you know, it's action. It's, you know, it's not pretending to be nothing uh, other than that it is. But if you're moving into a, in, into a realm where you're trying to make things look as authentic as possible, it's that really that sort of attention to detail that is so important. Obviously, you can't replicate reality because it'd be quite boring, quite frankly. But... The, it's it's making sure what people see, their unconscious goes, yeah, that looks right. So Andy, when I, t- when I spoke to Tom Hopper about the film a couple of weeks ago, he said that you were an invaluable resource to them in telling this story. What was your main goal in working with the actors to help them embody these characters? You know, it was more about the mindset of the characters as opposed to the, you know, what they're physically, you know, the physicality. Because, the, you know, the, the, these are action actors. They know, they know what they're doing. What it was was really trying to get them into the heads of the people who do this as a profession, because obviously there's a lot of cliches out there, you know, if I'm running around out of breath, all that sort of stuff right. and saying, well, you, you don't do that unless you have to. For instance, there's a scene where Tom Hopper and the rest of the special air service are walking to the helicopters with all their gear. Normally what you'd see is them rushing, you know, show a sense of, you know, of drama. But actually, what's the point? You're getting on a helicopter. A helicopter's going to take you there. Right. So it's, it's silly, you know, it's silly things like that. Um, and certainly when they're they're involved in whatever it may be, the room combat or the action that takes place in the in the tunnel, is not only explaining to them how these guys would do it, but actually the full process to get there. So it's all about the intent. So if they're pointing a weapon, they're shooting it. What they do, they understand the intent behind it. 
as opposed to just go, carrying out the actions. And the biggest mistake was starting doing that with the actors because then they were on it 24-7 for the rest of the shoot, you know, million <laughs> questions every okay. day, every day, every day, which is good. What, what's it like working with, with somebody like uh, Magnus Martins, uh, the director on this project, and even a screenplay, which was written by Lawrence Malkin? Because, again, when it's adapting a novel that you've written, I, there's always going to be nuances to changing things for film, but when you're trying to go with something as authentic as this is, what's the process like in working with them? You know, it, it's all about cooperation and it's, it's getting the right people to do the right jobs. And it's one of the reasons why I tend not to, if you like, just sell the intellectual property and leave it, you know, take the money and run. What I want to do is make sure that I'm, I'm part of it because there's a direct correlation between bad TV and movie and bad book sales. So I want to make sure I can keep on buying shoes. So it's that sort of collaboration. So it, it's Magnus understood it. He got it. You know, Larry Malkin got it. And actually then just working together. So obviously uh, Larry's an American. So there was obviously the, 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 the UK sort of the English sort of nuance uh, bits and pieces and the way that these people would talk to each other, even the radio procedures and all that. So it's a, mm -hmm. it was a, a collaboration. And then when obviously on the set, the boss is Magnus. He's the boss, you know, because he's the director and he's, you know, and so he's got to interpret the, the way that he, he, he wants to see it. But actually, even during the filming, when we'd get to, you know, certain scenes and certain parts of the whatever scenes were being shot for that day, it's actually sitting down with Magnus. Magnus would have questions. The actors would have questions. So when they got on to do their first rehearsals, you know, you, you sort of you, you do three or four shots and then gradually get it up, get up to speed. You know, you, you were part of that process. But then actually when it all started, then Magnus is the boss because he knows what he wants. He's heard everything. This is how it's going to happen. But because of the collaboration, it worked fine. Excellent. Now, SAS Red Notice actually shows us an emergency response operation, which I love that it was that specific in the in the description of the of the movie i thought that was great now one of the things that struck me though was that there was also a big focus on the political aspects of such an operation not just the tactical stuff as well so do you think an aspect of the story that's not an, an aspect of the story like this it often kind of gets lost in the shuffle of all of the action and how much of a big factor it is in operations like this yes yeah, yeah you know totally because if you're doing an action thriller obviously everybody wants to focus on the action but actually when you look at what happens say ss red notes or any of these sort of big sort of um operations that take place that's if you like the tip of the spear the you know the 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 reasons why why the incident has happened and what happens politically to be able to get you on the ground to do it and and that's why you you know the, the actors uh, the, you know the, the guys were going do i have control because it you know we well we both live in 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 sort of you know uh, democracies mm -hmm. so we can't have the military then taking over on sovereign soil uh, things going on you know th there's a protocol so therefore all the political situation is literally 90% of the story if you was going to go in that that political sense and the action takes place at the end you know it's getting people in to actually get a resolution to the situation and for whatever reason this and again red notice there's a you know political aspect and the reason why that happened but actually you know it, it's if you like the action bit in re reality it's about 10% of the of the, the situation no doubt, no doubt. Far, far more than 10% of this movie, though, that's for sure. There's a ton of action, oh, yeah, in this yeah, thing, yeah, 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 which yeah. I love. Talking to Andy McNabb, who's a writer, and he was an executive producer for SAS Red Notice, which is in select theaters now and video on demand as well. Now, Andy, I love getting into the mind 
of the enemy in stories like this and trying to understand their motives is always something that fascinates me about these t- types of films. So how would you describe Grace and Ruby Rose's portrayal of the character that just had so many layers to me? Yeah, it's it's really sort of, first of all, trying to show that, you know, in, in a traditional sense, in, in storytelling, you've got to have a good guy and you've got to have the bad guy. But reality is always a bit, you know, there's always a gray area. So it's trying to show Ruby, first of all, who's in that gray area. She's doing what she's doing for a reason, which we we, we later understand. Might not agree with it, uh, or we might right. not sort of agree with her, her motivation, but we understand the, re- the reasons why. Uh, what she's very aware of, of of herself so she's she now runs this this private military company that's been contracted to the the brit government for many years her her dad who's played by tom wilkinson has literally handed over the the company to her as opposed to the brother purely because what she's known as is a uh, she's registers quite high on the uh, uh, the scale of psychopathy mm-hmm. which technically it makes her um, uh, a psychopath she's very aware of that within that subsect of less than one percent of the population you know for instance there's good for easy enough there's other subsets in it good and bad so some people who, who you know can't control what they're doing other people who can control so let's say that what ruby is is a bad psychopath she has all the the traits of of psychopathy and she's obviously using them within that sense of uh, working for a private military company that has been fantastic for the Brits, who've been sort of, again, it's, you know, deniable operations, all those sort of things, you know, all, all countries do it. Where, as you've got Tom Buckingham, uh, Sam Ewan's character, who actually doesn't know what he is. He has all the characteristics, he has all of the the, the, the motivation to do what he does. But actually, what he, in, for one of a word, he's a, a good functioning psychopath, but he doesn't know it until he meets Grace, Ruby Rose, who actually gives him the good news. And and ultimately mm-hmm. she's saying, well, look, come out to the dark side. It's a lot better. It's a lot better. It's funny too that you that you bring that character up because I actually really like that, you know, he's a tough guy. He's a dangerous guy, but we see in this film too that he's also, you know, there's some vulnerability there and there's some some emotion there as well. So do you kind of feel like that emotional aspect serves as a reminder that you know, they might be soldiers, but they're still, you know, human beings and they're all fighting for something or someone. Absolutely. And again, that that's the, and again, we over the years, I think that, you know, from old black and white films in the 30s onwards, really, you know, that you've got the hero and he's very macho and he's all that. You know, the, the, the way that you sort of conduct, if you was going in that way, you know, working in, in, in uh, uh, special forces, well, you'd be, you'd be burnt out within about five mm. years. You know, people have a more professional work-like sort of view of, of what they do. And, and you know, the, if you like, the, the discipline and the, you know, the, the, the way to have longevity in that sort of place is to have emotions, being able to cut them off when you go operating. But literally, when you get back, you know, you still got to cut the grass. You still got to yep. find a cat. There's still, you know, all that stuff. And if you can do both of them, which... Tom Buckingham can, and then, you, you know, you can be an operator for many decades. Now, Andy, before I let you go, anybody that knows your work knows there's a few novels in the Tom Buckingham series, but, and I obviously don't want to spoil anything here for anybody who hasn't seen SAS Red Notice, but I feel like, I mean, the door's wide open, Andy, for a sequel to this film. So would you agree? And how many Tom Buckingham stories do you have to tell, whether on the screen or on the page? 
there's three emotion at the moment. So uh, because of you know the, the the reception for the film's been fantastic, mm-hmm. you know both you know in Europe and in in the United States. So all of a sudden the you know the the studios are going oh well this looks good you know let's have a look at doing some more. So we're we're sort of you know what's the term in discussions? Yes, it, because there's there's lots more that that Tom can get up to. That's all we can ask for is to be in discussions because you're going to want to watch SAS Red Notice whether it be in theaters or on video on demand and in the US or the UK. I don't care where you are. Make sure you're going to see this thing and anything else <laughs> that this guy's got going on because, I mean, there's a lot and it's all good stuff. Andy McNabb, thank you so much for joining a me this pleasure. week. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's not every day that you get to talk to a former SAS agent who also happens to be a best-selling author. Such an amazing conversation with Andy McNabb. And if you want something that's authentic and that also has a ton of action, I said it before, SAS Red Notice is something you need to be watching from Vertical Entertainment and Redbox Entertainment, either in theaters or on demand. Thanks to Andy McNabb for joining me this week. Up next, yet another interview and a special edition of what we're reading, talking to writer Rodney Barnes about Philadelphia and more. Up next, I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is comic book creator Jason Sean Alexander, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So excited to talk to this guy because he's done so many great things, whether it be in TV and and the comics that he's written have been fantastic so far, especially Philadelphia. And that has been one of my favorites over the last year or so. So I'm really excited to get to talk to this guy, Rodney Barnes. Rodney, what's up, man? Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good. So I want to start off with Philadelphia, actually. And anyone that might not be familiar with this incredible story, what made you want to tell a modern day vampire tale centered in the city of philadelphia a number of things i've been rolling the story around in my head since childhood and always really wanting to tell a vampire story but doing it in such a way that didn't feel like the million other vampire stories that have been sort of uh, rehashed over the years and as the math started coming to me i was like hey that's kind of cool that's kind of cool too and Adding in certain elements, the political element I hadn't seen before, some of the psychological, emotional components I'd never seen before. So it was like, why not just take a shot? And then uh, Jason Sean Alexander, the uh, our artist uh, or co-creator for that matter, he came up with a really great look and take for how he would execute the book. So it was like, Let's go for it. I mean, the book really does have it all. It's not just vampires, like you said. I mean, there's a detective story there. There's also an estranged family story there. There's even an undead president in this thing, Rodney. So looking back at the first three volumes, what's your favorite aspect of this story? I'll have to say the the family aspect of father and son story, mostly because it's the one that's most personal to me. I, I, I don't think we talk enough about empathy and trauma and how the two are related as far as healing is concerned. And certainly with men and certainly, certainly with black men. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, really taking a shot, an honest yet gentle approach to how I think forgiveness can manifest itself was the challenge, but also the thing that I'm most proud of when it comes to the book. No doubt about it. It feels like when it comes to stories with classic monsters like vampires, werewolves and the like, there are very few that actually tell stories from the perspective of the black community. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, I think of stories like Victor Laval's Destroyer, Blade, obviously, and now Philadelphia. So was that part of what made this a passion project for you? It was, but more so to, to speak about it from a cultural human entry point. You know, every so often when people say, oh, it's a black story, it's a black vampire, 
they're speaking to a very narrow idea of what that means. I, I think that there are ties that bind us as human beings and, and that bleeds over into stories. The way we even started this conversation in talking about families, the family story, everybody has a family, doesn't matter what group you come from. No doubt, yeah. There's some form of connection that we all feel as human beings. It, culturally, that's the thing that makes it specific. You know, that's the thing that adds a separate type of nuance to the story of, okay, I understand what a father and son is. They may come from a different community. Mm -hmm. That only means that they're influenced by those elements that are specific to them. But the love that's under it, the connection that's under it, some of the ways that the relationship manifests itself, all of that is still universal. And so, right. like I said, the nuance and specificity was something I was interested in, but also the connector to everyone else who's gone through a similar dynamic in their lives. No doubt about it. Very well put. And I think that you talked about Jason Sean Alexander already, who's incredible. And what has it been like working with him throughout these first couple of volumes? And was there a specific, like a page or a panel or when you saw it, it just blew you away and you still remember it to this day? Yeah, there's a, there's a splash page, a double splash page where James Sangster is laying in the coffin and there are angels above him and demons below him that I thought Jason nailed, uh, even though he's nailed virtually everything yeah. he's done so far. I was in the Sistine Chapel and I took a picture of a similar painting from history and I sent it. I texted immediately to uh, Jason. I was like, get ready because you're going to see this in the script somewhere. Nice. And you know, I'm a big fan of Jason's work. If you ever break into Jason's house, it looks like an art gallery. And it's all of this emotion that's coming from his paintings. And that sort of motivates me as a writer to try to challenge him as much as I can to, to push himself to those places. Not that he naturally wouldn't go there, but as a fan, I want to see it for myself. Absolutely. We're talking to Rodney Barnes, who, of course, is the writer of Philadelphia and so many other Great things that you've seen. And of course, Philadelphia is available now. The first two volumes, issue 13, going to be out on May the 26th. Now, Rodney, you're working with Levitin TV on an adaptation for Philadelphia that was announced, I believe it was last year. You obviously have an extensive background in writing TV, but it feels like this is different because, I mean, this, this story is yours. So, I mean, is it a bit different because it's yours so do you approach it differently than some of maybe your other tv projects in the past or is this just business as usual no it was much more personal i can tell you for any of my former producers that may be listening that said wow he turned that around really quickly <laughs> uh, i wrote the pilot and i wrote so many drafts of the pilot because there's a bridge between what a graphic novel is and an adaptation of a graphic novel it's like if any fans of the walking dead that read the book realize that the book is slightly different than the television show. Mm -hmm. And it's the same for Philadelphia as well. Being able to interpret, you know, the world that we live in today into a genre piece that still feels like it's true to what the fans have come to read in the book was a challenge, but I look forward to it. I sort of wrote the book and designed the book in such a way that it was TV friendly. You know, in a no doubt, yeah, it way. really was. If you look at each uh, issue, each issue sort of is framed the way, in a lot of TV, it's a five-act structure where four acts of network TV, where there's four acts that sort of tell an A story, and then there's a, a fifth act that sort of connects to what's to come. I sort of built that into the book to where there was a hopefully a satisfying story that's being told in your A story, but it's still connected to a larger thing that's taking place. So... 
you know, it, it's it's a lot more personal. You know, I, I care about everything that I write and everything that I do, but I'd be lying if I didn't say that being able to speak to what's under your own personal life mm-hmm. and the emotions that drive you doesn't, you know, notch things up a toke when you're sitting there in the middle of the night writing a story. I can imagine. Do you have a wish list for the Sangster family as far as actors are concerned? <clears throat> I mean, I know Chris Rock's already a fan, so is Jordan Poole, so, <laughs> you know. Andre Brower. Uh, oh, what a great choice. I'm a huge fan of Homicide Life on the Street. And Me rest too. in peace to uh, Yafakoto, who passed yesterday, I believe. And as a young person watching that show, and I'd never seen a detective on television sort of be the way his Frank I Hamilton know. was, the character that he played. And so I'd be lying again if I didn't say that that influence didn't bleed into uh, James Sangster Sr., in the book and so immediately you know he sort of sprang to mind if you make that happen rodney i'm gonna lose it man because i'm a huge andre (laughs) brower fan i will lose it i'm telling you right now and the tea leaves are starting to get in there too because brooklyn 99 is going to be ending so there you go oh my gosh he's thought it through and it's working out okay so rodney you've also worked on like i said a bunch of other tv projects you got to work on a couple of episodes uh, right, actually, a couple of episodes of Marvel's Runaways. So how would you say your experience working on that Marvel series differed from some of your other TV work that you've done? Well, it was during that period of time, I was desperately trying to create a bridge from the sitcoms I had worked on before into getting into one hours and genre one hours in specifically. And it was a great experience. Um, Josh Schwartz and, and Stephanie uh, Savage were great as far as uh, helping that happen. And as well, that's when I began to write comic books. You know, they liked my work in, on the show and I made it clear that I wanted to get into writing comics. And the good folks at Marvel Television made a call into Marvel Publishing. And that's actually how I got my start and got my first assignment. So Marvel's Runaways was a big, was a big jump forward for me into what I'm doing now. It's funny that you bring up your comics because I actually wanted to ask you about the Lando comic that you wrote a couple of years ago, which was really, really good. We know that there's a Lando series coming to Disney Plus as well. So if someone who's written the character in the time of the time frame that the character is going to be based on for the series, what are your hopes for that project? And how would you approach it if you were in that writer's room? I mean, I think the same way they're doing such a great job with Mandalorian right now, that if Lando were to get that type of treatment that just expands that, um, you know, it feels like even a throwback to the stuff that I used to love growing up still, but with a modern take, if Lando's able to sort of embody that stuff, that that ambition, that's enough for me. I'll be watching. I hear that. Hey, I'm going to be watching regardless because I can't wait for that one. I want to go back to Philadelphia for a minute because there's a huge moment in issue 12. It was very sudden, impactful, and one that I did not see coming. I won't spoil it for anybody that hasn't read it. So... How does what Abigail did at the end of that issue go on to impact what we're going to see in volume three and issue 13? Well, I think, again, if you look at the relationship between Sangster Senior and Sangster Junior, you know, the, the path to healing and forgiveness isn't a simple one. You know, in the first story arc, they make up, they hug, and in a lot of other stories, that would be it. You know, you right. sort of kind of that's it. We made up. We're friends again. We love each other. I don't think life works that way. I think there are ups and downs when it comes to relationships that have 
trauma under them that it, it takes a while for things to even out. And so Jimmy has to work through his stuff and now he has a major challenge to work through. And now his father is directly a part of him working through that major challenge that Abigail presented both of them with the guilt and shame that comes with uh, a father feeling like he jeopardized, he put his son in harm's way and a son who has to sort of find his own identity within not only their relationship, but himself, because Jimmy's sort of been a character who is still trying to figure it out, trying mm -hmm. to figure out what life is. And so that's sort of what volume three is. It's a journey uh, between two guys very specifically trying to heal. There's another wow moment at the end of that issue too, but that, but I won't spoil that either. You're going to have to read it for yourself. <laughs> now, Rodney, before I let you go, I see that David Mack's going to be doing variants for, for issue 13, which I'm really excited about. You've had some superstar variants, man. I mean, Todd McFarlane, Scotty Young, some others too. So are there any other artists you'd love to see do future variant variants or any that are coming up that you might be able to re reveal for us? Man, it's so many. Uh, I think uh, I always, just from a fantasy place, we don't have them, but Dave McKean, who I'm a huge fan of. Oh, yeah. Uh, who did the covers for Sandman and Miracle Man back in, in Another Day for Me. Uh, guys like John Tottleben. I go back to my, you know, my initial love of comics. Right. I'm a fanboy for that. And we were so fortunate to get Neil Adams to do um, issue five, a variant for us there. And because uh, I'm a huge Neil Adams fan. Guys like that. I think we have Simon Beasley. We have um, we have a bunch of guys that Jason just named that he knows that I don't directly know. But, you know, David was a was a great find. I think he may be doing a couple for us. Uh, John Wayshack is doing uh, one or two. I mean, we've been so fortunate because variants are such a um, they're true to the culture of what comics are today that being able to get that caliber of talent to you know, help us with our little book. It's an honor. I think Kari Randolph would be amazing, by the way. If I'm, if we're throwing uh, names out there. There you go. I mean, why should Brandon Thomas get to have all the fun, right? I, I mean, agree. I think, <laughs> I think that guy, that guy could do an amazing cover yes, for Philadelphia, uh, man. Jason, are you listening? Maybe. Jason, come He's on, been man. on the make show before, so there's a yes. possibility he could be listening. <laughs> yes, make it happen. I'll make sure he listens. I'll there make you, sure. There you go. There you go. Well, issue 13 of Philadelphia is going to be available on May the 26th at your local comic book shops and digital retailers from Image Comics. Volumes 1 and 2 available now, so you have no excuse. If you haven't read it yet, you've got plenty of time to catch up. You're going to want to catch up. This is such a deep and layered story. If, if You've already heard me rave about it when I reviewed it, so just go read it. It's Philadelphia from this guy right here. It's Rodney Barnes. Rodney, thank you so much for taking the time today. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you as well. Yeah, don't make the mistake of letting this story pass you up. Make sure you're reading Volumes 1 and 2 of Philadelphia right now before the third volume starts coming up at the end of May. You're not going to want to miss out on this one. That's going to do it for this special edition of what we're reading up next. There's still some nerd news to talk about, so let's do it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Arvind Ethan David, executive producer of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Are we just counting down the hours to the next DC film? It's time for nerd news. That might be literal because according to The Hollywood Reporter, a movie based on Our Man is being developed by Warner Brothers. And before I get into why, I will get into the how. And it centers around the brilliant yet troubled pharmaceutical analyst who discovers that visions have plagued him since childhood are actually glimpses of tra tragic events 
occurring one hour in the future. To me, that points to Rick Tyler, not Rex Tyler, if you know your hour man. So that they haven't said which hour man it's going to be, but it looks like to me that that's who it's going to be. Churn in Entertainment, who did the Planet of the Apes movies, going to be a part of this, and Gavin James and Neil Widener are going to be writing the script. No director named yet. Really quickly, I just have to say, and I, you know me if you've listened to this show even more than once, I'm a big DC fan. Grew up on DC. I've always loved DC. So I'll consume anything DC. But at the same time, I have to ask, why? Why are we doing this? I know that there are hardcore Our Man fans, and the five of you are going to get mad at me for saying this. But listen, I like Our Man. I'm not saying Our Man's a bad character. What I'm saying is he's a supporting character. And there's no earthly reason to do this. And it, it just seems like too big of a risk to me financially in a time where, you know, the movie industry hasn't exactly been burning it up. I realize there's been successes during the pandemic as well, but there's going to be some catching up to do. And I'm not sure an Our Man movie is how you really want to do that. And I'm not even saying his story isn't interesting. I'm just saying that people want to see movies about characters that they know. And there are rare instances where the, the it just happens to work out, like with Guardians of the Galaxy. That just happened to work out because James Gunn made a great movie, and it was a great cast. So that just happened, to, and it just happened to have the Marvel Studios logo on it, which, quite frankly, as much as I would love to admit otherwise, the DC logo doesn't carry as much cachet when it comes to movies, if we're being honest. Not yet, anyway. There's been some great DC movies made, but at the same time, the stigma for the general public says Marvel movies are better. And I won't get into that debate right now. But an Hour Man movie just does not seem necessary at all. And there's certain niche characters that I'd love to see get their own movies like, you know, Dr. Fate. And But I know it's not going to happen. I'm happy Dr. Fate is in the Black Adam movie. I'd be happy if Hour Man, Hour Man was in the Black Adam movie in some capacity. But his own movie? I don't see it. And, I, and I'll, I'll still watch it, of course. I'm not stupid. And I w- I'm, I'm still going to see it. But at the same time, I, I just don't see how this works and could be beneficial. Here's something that could be very beneficial for the CW, and that is the Naomi series. Of course, you know, the character co-created by Brian Michael Bendis from the Wonder Comics line that they had for DC is going to be getting her own series, and it's going to be coming this coming fall. And TV Line reports that Casey Walfall, who you may or may not have seen on Army Wives, has been cast in the title role. So relative unknown, as I predicted before, that, that ends up taking this role. We also have Alexander Wraith, who's been cast in the series, Cranston Johnson, and Camila Moreno as well, who was also a relative newcomer. And yes, we are going to see some familiar characters in this from the comics. You've got Zumbato, who's going to be a part of this. That's who Johnson's going to play. You're also going to have, you're going to have Moreno, who's going to be playing Lourdes, who, again, if you've read the comics. So this is one of those series that I think has a chance to be good because it's going to be a superhero series, but it's going to be a young adult superhero series. You know, like how Stargirl is a very young adult superhero series. I think Naomi's going to fall right into those footsteps. And I think that that's why why DC and the CW are partnering up for this series. First of all, it's it's a good, interesting character. She's very energetic and enthusiastic i've always loved that about the naomi comics there's a nice there's a great innocence about her that i love plus she's not afraid to show her nerdiness which i also love and he, here's the deal this is star girl worked so well 
for the CW in DC. Why wouldn't you want more of that? And Naomi has a chance to bring not just that to the screen, but also more representation for the CW as well. And I think that this is a good step for a lot of reasons to do this series. So I'm glad that Naomi's finally cast its lead. That means it's got one step. It's one step closer to actually happening. I was bummed when Wonder Girl didn't end up coming to pass. So it looks like Naomi will do just that. You want to talk about being triggered, man. We're a certain subsection of fans triggered over this announcement from Marvel Comics this week. Long story short, a new Captain America limited series is going to be coming called The United States of Captain America. And I will say that the headlines that were written on this were that there was going to be a new Captain America and it was going to be a, a member of the LGBTQ plus community. And yes, of course, that's going to trigger some people because, you know, hey, Steve Rogers is my Captain America. Sam Wilson, is, you know, I'm, we won't get into that. But you didn't bother to read the description of what the actual book is. And that is that basically that Steve Rogers has lost his shield. And he's going to be traveling across the country with Sam Wilson, Bucky Barnes, and John Walker to try and find it. And along the way, they meet people in communities that have adopted the Captain America moniker to help protect their communities. One of those people being Aaron Fisher, who is that member of the LGBTQ plus community that I mentioned before. So they're not replacing Steve Rogers or anybody else. They're just expanding the moniker. Okay. You can't be Superman without the powers, right? You just can't. You can put on the cape and you can wear the S, but you can't be Superman. You could technically be Batman, I guess, but there are certain heroes you just can't be. And yes, while not everyone will possess the super strength and healing and all that of Captain America. You can be Captain America without the powers, I think. That's just my opinion. Nobody's ever going to be Steve Rogers, okay? Nobody's going to be Sam Wilson. You're going to have... I actually think that this is a really, really neat thing that Marvel is doing. It's showing how everyday people can be heroes, basically. And I'm this is the only character that we know about... But I wouldn't be surprised we see a female Captain America in the mix here. Again, an African-American, Asian-American Captain America. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And, you know, anybody from any walk of life can be Captain America in this particular series. That is the point of the story, I think, is that we can all be Captain America and we can all make a difference in our community. And just by a simple little headline... People get triggered over this. I don't get it. This is why this was almost proof that nobody reads the article anymore, right? This is almost proof that you're going to see the headline. You're going to react to the headline only, and that's it. And the cover art, too, by the way. And by the way, this character, Varen Fisher, featured on the variant cover, by the way. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Nick Robles doing a, did a great job with variant, too, by the way. In case you're wondering, this book is going to be written by Christopher Cantwell and Josh Trujillo, excuse me, Josh, if I butchered your name there, also got some art from Dan Eaglesham and Jan Basildua. Again, just this is one of those things where you see the headline and you get triggered, and that kind of stuff drives me nuts when I think that this story actually has a pretty good chance of being very, very interesting, going to be coming out on June the 2nd. Here's something I was really excited about, and that is that 
IDW's Kanto is going to be getting an animated feature movie. That's right. Westbrook Studios is going to be teaming up with IDW for this animated feature with our lovable Kanto and turning clocks into hearts all over the pages of IDW Comics. This this character is one that I loved from the very beginning. Of course, you remember when I had David Boer and Drew Zucker on the podcast to talk about Kanto. It's just the story of hope and love that this character has blows me away every time that I read this. And the action is good. The character designs are fantastic. This movie is going to look so beautiful on the screen. People are going to fall in love with this character. I have absolutely no doubt. Now, who's going to be distributing this thing? Don't know yet. We haven't quite gotten there yet. But, I mean, whoever gets this movie is going to be lucky to have it because I think Kanto is going to make a fantastic animated feature. And I think this is one of those characters that could really have long-standing success in the movies, not just in the comics. I'm glad we're getting more comics too, but in the movies, I think this character has a real shot at doing a lot and becoming a household name before you know it. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to all my amazing guests this week. Hey, we'll have more next week too. Make sure you go to downandnerdypodcast.com to keep up with it all. Also, follow along on social media because, hey, sometimes these video, sometimes these interviews have videos as well. You can see the video versions of the interviews at downandnerdypodcast.com and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Follow along on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.